You are listening to a very special, very festive episode of The Nerve, an English at WIT podcast. Ho, ho, ho. My name is Dr. Jenny O'Connor, a lecturer of English at Waterford Institute of Technology. And I'm joined today by a veritable panoply of <laughs> colleagues in the studio today. So here we have Dr. Krista de Bruyne and Dr. Una Keeley, both lecturers in English, and Dr. Paul Claher, lecturer in Religious Studies and Theology, and someone who we need with us to talk about Christmas, really, which is our topic today. Um, so we decided that this episode should be about the literature or the film of Christmas as we see it. Um, where possible, we're going to read some excerpts or play a clip and we'll discuss the reasons that these texts speak to us about Christmas in some way. Um, so we might start with you, Krista, if that's OK, and probably the most un-Christmassy title ever. So tell us why you chose to include The Dead by James Joyce. Um, and we might even we'll play a little clip from the film maybe as well. Um, so The Dead by James Joyce. What the hell, Krista? What's going on? <laughs> Well, to ensure people don't think of me as this Scrooge-like spirit, I would encourage them to read the text. <laughs> there um, is a relationship to Christmas. I'm only joking, of course. Um, so it's um, the final story in the Dubliners, published in 1914, and is widely regarded as Joyce's great uh, short story and one of the finest short stories of the 20th century. Um, so the story is set on the Feast of the Epiphany and... Um, this, of course, is the manifestation of Christ, um, but also Joyce uses Epiphany throughout uh, the Dubliners and indeed in later texts as well as that moment of realisation, uh, that moment of revelation when things change. And of course, there's a key revelation over the, the story of the dead as Gabriel um, has a moment of insight into his relationship with his wife, Greta, and he had assumed that he was always her only love. And a song leads her to think about a former love whom she pined for. And all of this is realised over the course of the story. So it's an insight into relationships, into love, into loss, and also into national identity as well. Um, at the same time, we have this uh, lavish description of a, of a Christmas party, a Christmas dinner, um, Joyce talks about the goose and all its trimmings and so on. So it's a, it's a very Christmassy story. Yeah. And to get that Christmas sense, it's really useful to watch the uh, 1987 adaptation by John Huston of the story. And this it's a beautiful Christmas tradition. I watch this every Christmas. I love it. It stars um, Angelica Huston as Greta Conroy and Donald McCann as Gabriel. Um, it's about an hour long. Um, but it's it's full of gaiety and full of joy, despite the the title. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a lovely thing to watch at Christmas. So that's why I chose it. Yeah, it's interesting. The sixth of January is Women's Christmas, yeah. um, and it is interesting, isn't it? And important probably that Gabriel, you were saying like it's it's a reconsideration of identity. His Irish identity is wondering about his Irishness, and he's interrogated about that by um, another uh, member at the table, let's say. Um, but he's also castigated kind of by her and by uh, another woman as well, a servant in the house too. So it's interesting that on this feast of women's Christmas that, you know, he, those two moments are quite important to him, aren't they? He, he can't mm. seem to reconcile his own kind of class and his own position as a man in society with with this kind of exchange that he has with this servant girl. Um, he's not quite sure how to react to her. She's quite short Lily, with him. Yeah. Lily, sorry, I couldn't remember yeah. her name. I thought I was going to say Lucy Lily, of course. Um, that, you know, isn't it interesting that he has those kind of little exchanges that yeah. unsettle him a, a little bit? Mm. 
I mean, there's three of them, really. So there's the... And Greta, um, of course. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when he's called a West Brit, of course, yes. he um, contributing to the paper. So mm. I, I think there are moments where he has to um, come to terms with his own ego, you know, and he has mm. to reconcile the fact that he doesn't understand these women um, the way he thought he did. He, you know, he thought he knew Greta inside out and that he was her great love. And, and they do have a great love. They're a very stable couple, you know, probably the most stable couple that Joyce gives us, in fact, um, in his writing. But um, there are a lot of key insights for Gabriel over the course of this story. You know, the um, interaction with Lily is, is interesting. She says, oh, um, men, they're only all palaver and what they can get out of you. You know, and that, yes. that shocks them. And, you know, then during the dance um, with Mina when he's accused of uh, being a West Brit, there are all moments that, that shake his foundation. Yeah. You know, so at the end of the story, um, he's a changed man. Um, so it's interesting to look at it, not in terms of plot, because Joyce doesn't give us a lot in terms of plot. I mean, the modernists don't, yeah. you know. Um, but there are great revelations over the course of the story. Little yes. epiphanies, if you like. Over yeah, the course exactly. Of it, little you know. epiphanies. Well, we listen to a little clip yeah. from the film and we might talk about this afterwards. So this is the end of of the film and the end of the book. Oh, sorry. The, yeah, well, it is the end of the book as well, isn't it? Mm. The end of the story. Um, and let's just listen to this. It's about a minute long. How long you locked away in your heart the image of your lover's eyes when he told you that he did not wish to live. I've never felt that way myself towards any woman, but I know that such a feeling must be love. Think of all those who ever were, back to the start of time, and me, transient as they, flickering out as well into their grey world, like everything around me, this solid world itself, which they reared and lived in, is dwindling and dissolving. Snow is falling. Falling in that lonely churchyard where Michael Fury lies buried. Falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Okay, so we have th this very poetic section at the end, don't we? Um, we're about the solid world dwindling and dissolving and about snow falling faintly on the living and the dead. And it is that, you know, Wow, wouldn't we all love to be able to write that? I mean, however we might feel about Joyce at other times, um, we w one has to admit that is just beautiful, isn't it? Stunning. Yeah. Um, I can listen to it all day, and it's it's important that they include it. I mean, it's 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 interesting when you talk about the, about adaptation and about how you adapt a story like that that is so rooted in poetic language, because it's a difficult thing to do, very difficult thing to do. But I think that was such an appropriate choice to end it with Joyce's own words, rather than ending it on an image or something like that. Would probably be more cinematic in a sense, but it would do the short story an injustice. Those words about, you know, the solid world dwindling and dissolving, it is a very kind of a modernist idea, isn't it? About about yeah. the fragmentation of those solid identities that he, you know, these things that he used, that he clung to and thought he knew about. Mm. Um, 
It's important, isn't it? Yeah, and I suppose Christmas is a time when we reflect on those who've passed and we, you know, particularly remember um, the dead. And so there is maybe less of a boundary between the living and the dead at Christmas time, particularly the Feast of the Epiphany. You know, and I think the language really beautifully captures that and, you know, the transient nature of life. So he says one by one, they were all becoming shades or ghosts. Um, Better pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than fade dismally with age. Yes. So, um, yeah, I think it, it very much captures what um, Virginia Woolf said about your know, modernist writing, that it should be a, a fusion of poetry and fiction, you know, mm. that it captures these moments of being rather than being plot driven. Um, it's driven by these insights, these, you know, reflections of the of the inward thoughts of the characters and so on. And I really think that's what we get here. Yeah, it is beautiful. I might move on to a poem that I chose um, for today, um, which is called Christmas Eve by Anne Sexton. And the reason is that because you were just talking there about, you know, reflecting on people who have passed at Christmas. And it is something, it's a very poignant time of the year um, and a very sad time of the year for some people too. Um, This poem was, you know, written on the 24th of December, obviously, uh, but in 1963. And it's written by Anne Sexton, who is a confessional poet. And she writes, it's really about a a mother-daughter relationship. Um, And you can sense a lot of anxiety in this poem about her mother who has passed. Um, It's, I suppose, it's a really, it's a sad tale because within four months of each other in 1959, both of Anne Sexton's parents died and they left her, among other things, they left her a mink coat which she was wearing herself when she committed suicide in 1974 at the age of 45. And they also left her a diamond. And the very first line of this is, oh, sharp diamond, my mother. Um, And it's just something that is so kind of powerful. I I didn't know that about her. Um, And she's she's just a very interesting um, poet herself. You know, her her poetry was criticised for just being for for just not being kind of intellectual enough and it was being because she exposed herself through her poetry that that was an easy thing i suppose to target her for um and yet it it gets to the core of of emotion in a way like that sometimes her her expressions are coarse or her metaphors aren't you know maybe as smooth as as you might find in Joyce or whatever um but there's a there's a rawness and there's an intensity about them so i might read the poem actually for those of you who haven't heard it before Um, So I apologise for my diction or whatever might come out of my mouth in the next few minutes, but hopefully it will be the words of the poem. That's what we hope for. Um, So this is Christmas Eve by Anne Sexton. Oh, sharp diamond, my mother, I could not count the cost of all your faces, your moods, that present that I lost. Sweet girl, my deathbed, my jewel fingered lady, your portrait flickered all night by the bulbs of the tree. Your face as calm as the moon over a mannered sea presided at the family reunion the 12 grandchildren you used to wear on your wrist a three months old baby a fat check you never wrote the red-haired toddler who danced the twist your aging daughters each one a wife each one talking to the family cook each one avoiding your portrait each one aping your life later after the party after the house went to bed i sat up drinking the christmas brandy watching your picture letting the tree move in and out of focus The bulbs vibrated. They were a halo over your forehead. Then they were a beehive, blue, yellow, green, red, each with its own juice, each hot and alive, stinging your face. But you did not move. I continued to watch, forcing myself, waiting, inexhaustible, 
35. I wanted your eyes like the shadows of two small birds to change, but it, they did not age. The smile that gathered in me, it gathered me in, all wit, all charm, was invincible. Hour after hour I looked at your face, but I could not pull the roots out of it. Then I watched how the sun hit your red sweater, your withered neck, your badly painted flesh pink skin. You who led me by the nose, I saw you as you were. Then I thought of your body as one thinks of murder. Then I said, Mary, 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 forgive me. And then I touched a present for the child, the last I bred before your death. And then I touched my breast and then I touched the floor and then my breast again, as if somehow it were one of yours. Isn't that a kind of a startling poem? Yeah, it's a powerful um, It is really powerful. And something that is striking about it as well is, you know, Sexton employs ritual quite a lot in her poetry. And, you know, you can see that there's kind of almost this Catholic ritual and, and the, the name of her mother is Mary. And she says, Mary, 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 forgive me. Um, so there's kind of, there, there's a deep sadness here. Um, and and, and also, also a consideration of the woman that her mother was and the woman then that she must have been to herself, you know, before she was a mother. Um, I think it's just so layered and I think some of the some of the imagery is so very startling as well. I love that notion of all of your ageing daughters kind of around and each one a wife, each one, you know, avoiding your portrait, each one aping your life. There's something, I don't know, there's something kind of devastating about that, that we all grow up, we become our parents and we spend our time avoiding the portrait. We don't look at the mortality of our own parents until we absolutely have to. And it smacks us in the face in the middle of the night in a way that you can't take your eyes off. Um, so I suppose, again, <laughs> in terms of, you know, it, it's not an um, uplifting idea of Christmas in any sense. It just really struck me as something. Christmas is one of those times where the emphasis is on having one particular type of emotion and that's happiness. And we're all supposed to be buzzing with that mm. happiness. And sometimes the lights of the tree are a halo above somebody's head in a picture that you don't want to look at and that you can't take your eyes off at the same time. And that is the other side of Christmas, isn't it? It's mm. that whole kind of... Yeah, and I suppose that idea that she as a mother is creating the Christmas for her children as her mother created the Christmas for them. Yeah. You know, this idea of creating happiness for for the children and for the family and the importance of that and how precious that is how precious that is yeah it really she touched is. the child's present yeah and she, and she touched her breast that and present that i lost flo- yeah there's something there is something lost there yeah. yeah exactly and there is in that final stanza there is something ritualistic as you say around mm. the the act of touching yes the 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 touching you know her i don't know her own sacred heart her mother as a sacred heart the child's present as a symbol of of that line of love albeit difficult and dismantled yeah. in its own way and it and it really strikes me that you know in the dead when gabriel gives his speech about like but it is important that you know we live life yeah. and and yet he doesn't really do that himself you know 
that there's something about, well, we have to have those tangible elements, you know, quick, let's hold on to the things that we can touch, that we can feel mm. because we're alive now. It's almost like a desperation in that, isn't it? At the end, it's really... There is. Beautiful. Yeah, and something affir- affirming. Affirming as well, I suppose of course, Maybe yeah. I'm looking for that, you know, I'm conscious I know. of that. Yeah, but there is. I mean, you know, th- th- she's looking for the thing that she lost and we, you know, yeah. that, that that's always going to be a continue, continual search for her, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. But, yeah, you, you hold on to what you can, don't mm. you? Isn't that mm. what it is? Um, so that was my choice. Um, we might move on to your choice, Paul. Your choice is slightly different. And I would argue maybe this is more of an Easter movie. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what is your choice? Okay, my choice uh, for your alternative Christmas is The Last Temptation of Christ by Martin (laughs) Scorsese. Why? Because you're going to spend potentially some of your Christmas uh, bypassing some biblical looking movie on a TV at before you flick, of course, and go, oh, no. Uh, but these movies are actually a staple of Chris- of Christmas itself. So this and is this is like, is this two and a half hours long? Two and a quarter yeah, hours three long? three hours, I think. Is it nearly. three hours? Yeah. Now, you won't find it on like Sky Matinee in the middle of the day. Yeah. Um, it's not something you might. Yeah, you might leave it until the kids are gone to bed. <laughs> um, but uh, the so The Last Temptation of Christ, given that. Christmas has this element of Christ <laughs> in it somewhere. It does. Uh, somewhere buried. The, well, buried um, in the title. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that uh, maybe it's uh, worth uh, having a think about a very alternative uh, retelling of um, the, the the life of Jesus. And this is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Because this really challenges traditional sanitised stories about Jesus mm. that my kids come home from school mm-hmm. with in their religion books. Yeah. Um, this is not like those, is it? Um, so why is, what's important about this film for your area of research and I suppose for this reconsideration of Christ at Christmas? Yeah, it's interesting that like um, the one of the things about the New Testament, if you ever read it, is that um, there's only two versions of Jesus's infancy in it and both of them disagree. Uh, right. One in Matthew where there's uh, a lot of wise men running around looking for a star and one that's a bit more sentimental in the Gospel of Luke, the one that we're probably more familiar with of shepherds and uh, stables and mangers uh, and things like that. The other two gospels in the New Testament don't talk, aren't interested in how Jesus was born at all. Wow! Um, so it's a later tradition. And the other thing about the New Testament is that it doesn't really give you a great insight into character development. It's not a conventional uh, novel. It doesn't work. Its literature doesn't work like the novel or the biography. So characters tend to be a little bit uh, not closed, but they're certainly inaccessible to us in in the same way. So a part of the tradition that sp- spans out of that. Is um, is firstly the Jesus novel, the Jesus no- novel in the 18th century and uh, 19th century, and then 20th century becomes this mode of fictional speculation on the things that the New Testament remains silent about. And the Last Temptation of Christ was a novel by uh, the Greek author Nikos Kazantzakis, and it comes against this lo- this tradition of about 200 years of novels on Jesus that speculate on all sorts of aspects of uh, the New Testament and all the artistic and literary and musical uh, traditions that have followed. So the movie was made finally in 1988 by Martin Scorsese, who some, I think, 10, 20 years earlier had been given a copy of the book, read it, wanted to make a movie about it immediately. But um, given the book, uh, its most contentious element surrounded the idea of Jesus's kind of hidden desire 
yeah. which is played out in a in a in a in a dream sequence that takes up about a third of the book, maybe a little less, um, but a lot longer in the movie, uh, where he imagines living a normal life um, and getting married, having children, practicing polygamy at one point as well. Um, all of the en- enjoyable things that a messiah <laughs> should reward oneself with. And, <laughs> and uh, they, obviously the movie was... Um, was almost banned here, although the film censor at the time, whose name I, I, I forget, uh, in fairness, stood up for the movie because, as he allegedly told the Archbishop of Dublin at the time, who I think was Des Connell, uh, told him, well, I've actually watched this, yes. <laughs> was his line uh, out of it. And um, it is a movie when Scorsese was asked, what was the point of all of this? Uh, one of Scorsese's responses was that if... Christianity presumes a truly human Jesus, then it would want to get to grips with what humanity actually means. There are all sorts of implications to it. And he found in Kazantzakis' vision a uh, powerful way of trying to, of exploring this. He was very quick to point to the fictional nature of what he was doing. He um, didn't do what I think has been seen since, which was kind of say, this is my definitive version Mm. uh, of the life of Jesus. Instead, he saw it as a fictional um, exploration of what Kazantzakis called an eternal uh, spiritual conflict that's in all human beings. Now, without going into the the layered philosophy behind Kazantzakis, one of Scorsese's ideas was to make all of this fresh. So if you watch, for example, uh, the Roman Christian epics of the 1960s, or 50s. And one of the interesting things about them is that they they kind of recalibrate everything onto a Western cultural register. So very simple things like um, all Jews speak with American accents. Yes. All Romans speak with British accents. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's and obvious. Callous, you know, of course. It's, it's not just it's 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 the villain. Um, so what Scorsese does is in a similar way to what they, those movies used to do. He do he brings his kind of street style of cinema to uh, to this movie. So everything's a bit rough, yes. uneven, and every character is a bit rough. So we have Harvey too. Keitel as Judas yeah. with kind of red curly hair, you know, mm. straight in from the Bronx or whatever, yeah. you know. Um, so it is, it is, it has that kind of, and Willem Dafoe, of course, we have as to mention Jesus, him. Yeah. Willem Dafoe is Jesus. Willem Dafoe minus all of the kind of crinkly, wrinkly face, facial yes. features that we associate with him now. That would he's, come later. Yes, that would come much later. But he's, kind of startling to look at in this movie you believe that he could be mm, Jesus absolutely yeah I, I mean one of the it, it, one of the um, the premises of the movie is that Jesus and Judas are friends since they were children yeah. and in the end in the movie Jesus begs Judas to betray him in order to in order to die yeah um, and so it's a whole reflection on you know the the, the type of fatalism that's often attached uh, to that uh, that story and they are basically buddies from a, from a Martin Scorsese movie. So yeah. if you look at Martin Scorsese's cinema, all of his cinema um, is populated with intense male, male relationships. relationships. Yeah. From Casino through to uh, even, even through to Silence. Yeah. Uh, more recently, it's all about these very intense kind of relationships. And Jesus, Jesus and Judas uh, share a similar relationship in this, speaking in thick accents. And hanging around street corners, he yeah. films the Middle East like a kind of New York street corner, you know, small 
intimate settings, uh, no kind of sweeping grand Yes, it's not Lawrence of Arabia. Or anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. So the Middle East is a very dark and dusty place in this movie. Yeah. Well, we have a little clip here. Yeah. Um, so I will play this clip and you might talk us through it afterwards. Yeah. And now I bring the good news to you. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. He was not the son of Mary. He was the son of God. His mother was a virgin. And the angel Gabriel came down and put God's seed in her womb. That's how he was born. And he was punished for our sins. Our sins. Then he was tortured and crucified. But three days later, he rose up from the dead and went up to heaven. Death was conquered. Amen. Death was conquered. Amen. Um, So this is Jesus meeting Paul, isn't it? Yeah. So in the middle of his dream sequence... In his dream, Jesus is tempted with a normal life. So he leaves the cross. He's saved from the cross. And as he's going about his normal life, coming to the end of his days as an elderly elderly man, he walks up a street and hears this guy talking about the divine Jesus. So this is St. Paul. And St. Paul is played by Harry Dean Stanton, mm. who I think died not long ago. Um, and he uh, plays him in the style of a kind of 1980s televangelist who's selling kind of a story, but you're not particularly certain about it and you don't, you suspect it's reliability. So in the in the following scene, uh, Willem Dafoe's Jesus comes up and asks him, you know, who are you talking about? That never happened. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it never happened to me. I'm here. I'm alive. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I live a happy life now. And Paul reminds him, in a very kind of flagrant way, and this is the indicator that the kind of internal fiction world of the dream is kind of beginning to to collapse in on itself. He says, you know, I created the truth out of what people needed. And if I have to crucify you over and over again, I will. And this becomes an argument over, well, what are what are what are the stories that we have been told mm-hmm. or are told about Jesus and what's their reliability? And Kazantzakis does the same thing in the novel, only he he relocates it to the character of Matthew, who's following Jesus around and literally writing everything down in a transcript in a take on the idea that the Gospels in the New Testament are eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Scorsese reworks that in the figure of Paul. Um, And the exchange that they have is about uh, the relationship between ideas like faith and history and the biblical text itself. Yeah. And and what's so good about it, I think, is the dialogue between the characters is mm. really, is really, really well done, I think, because it, in the wrong hands, a movie like this could have mm-hmm. been, oh, I don't know, you, you could have, it, it just, well, it, it's offensive to a lot of people, I know yeah. that, but it could have just been a very ill-conceived idea mm-hmm. to try and kind of put Jesus in this kind of more human form. Mm. Um, but I think the dialogue is done really well. We can see it in, in that little, or we can hear it in that little clip there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, qu- again, quite poetic language in places, very ambiguous statements that Jesus makes. We can see that he is full of doubt, full of despair, mm-hmm. that he actually doesn't want to be chosen. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really, really interesting. It's such a layered text and, it's, and it really makes the whole 
cult of Christianity look at itself, I think, mm. in a way that's very, very important. Um, so it's interesting that it caused such mayhem at the time because actually you can see exactly what it's trying to do and it's a very important thing. Yeah. Um, we might just move on to our last guest, Una Keeley, who is also going to talk about a, a poem. Um, probably not directly related to The Last Temptation of Christ, I'd imagine. <laughs> Hard to make the link, Jenny. <laughs> yes, no, no easy segues between that and this. There were a number of choices uh, running through my mind for this morning. I love A Christmas Carol, just to get this in before I read my, the poem that I've chosen. Everybody should just go away and read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens in the mm. run up to Christmas. Mm. It's it's so it's so worthwhile doing that. And there's a wonderful scene where Dickens describes the street and people doing their last minute shopping. There's just wonderful couple of paragraphs. And it's just it's absolutely fabulous for anybody who who has a kind of a frantic moment on Christmas, <laughs> pre-Christmas doing their shopping. So read that. There's a beautiful poem that I could have read this morning by E.E. E. Cummings called Little Tree. And well, you did treat us. I to did it treat you. We yes. came on here. <laughs> my mother spent many, many um, pounds. It was in the olden days on my speech and drama. And I treated <laughs> my colleagues to a bit of my speech and drama training. It was beautiful. Yeah, you'll get a bit now in a minute. Um, there's another poem by uh, Luke Wadding, of course, a Waterford man. And that's called On Christmas Day. And that's a really interesting poem to read if you want to read. If you're in Waterford and you want to read something by a Waterford uh, philosopher, poet, thinker and religious man. So there's there's a couple of lists um, for your Christmas reading. I'm going to read a poem called Christmas Eve by Matilda Blind. Two Christmas Eve poems yeah. we've had today. Yeah. <coughs> Alone, with one fair star for company, the loveliest star among the hosts of night. While the grey tide ebbs with the ebbing light, I pace along the darkening wintry sea. Now round the yew log and the glittering tree, twinkling with festive tapers, eyes as bright sparkle with Christmas joys and young delight as each one gathers to his family. But I, a waif on earth where'er I roam, uprooted with life's bleeding hopes and fears from that one heart that was my heart's sole home, feel the old pang pierce through the severing years. And as I think upon the years to come, that fair star trembles through my falling tears. Oh. Yes, so it has a little <laughs> echo there that we need to leave for the poem just to resonate out. So Matilda Blind was a free-thinking radical feminist. She lived from 1841 to 1896 and I don't know a whole lot about her. I suppose why I chose her um, was because I have this little book, Christmas Please, 100 Poems for the Festive Season and inside it last night I was thinking, what would I read? And I counted up the poems. There are 100 poems. 
there are eight poems by women. Wow. And there are three, 23 anonymous poems. You know that quote from Virginia Woolf <laughs> who says, you know, anonymous was a woman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, and I read through all the anonymous and I, I settled on Matilda Blind because I suppose because I knew so little about her. Mm. I knew about Christina Rossetti. Um, I knew about, I knew loads of different Christmas related poems. I realised most of the ones that I knew were, were by male authors. Yeah. And I suppose I wanted to, as anybody who is in my tutorials knows, I'm trying to expand my mind and my literary references. So I thought Matilda Blind was a good choice for me and did a little bit of thinking, a tiny little bit of research in, into her. She was a German-born English poet. She was a fiction writer, a biographer, an essayist. She was also a literary critic. She has a, she's a very distinguished literary career. Mm. So I'm really glad that I found her yeah. and that I'm, and I'm going to find out a little bit more of her. She was a contemporary of Swinburne, of William Morris, you know, people that I really enjoy reading and I, I, and I love William Morris, the, the design and artistry of William Morris. So it's intriguing to me that she was in this era having these conversations and well known among her contemporaries who have remained I suppose within the canon of literature and design um, Ford Maddox Brown you would have heard of William Michael Rossetti Oscar Wilde all of those names are very well known to us mm -hmm. but perhaps the name of Matilda Blind is less well known yeah. so I suppose that was one of the reasons why I chose her. Another reason was because we start this poem with the word alone. Mm. And we have the image of that star alone in the sky. That celestial, beautiful, peaceful image that is so associated with Christmas, you know. Mm. And with the star, there is this sense of hope. There is this, the glimmer, this glimmering star. And for, you know, for many people, Christmas is a time, as Krista said, when those barriers between the living and the dead become dissolved. And we think of those people that we've loved and who have maybe passed and we mourn their passing and we celebrate their life. And I just thought that at the end of that first stanza of the poem, now round the yule log and the glittering tree, twinkling with festive tapers, eyes as bright sparkle with Christmas joys and young delight. Isn't we have this beautiful image of the family we, and, you know, this nativity scene, the modern nativity, where we gather together <coughs> in friendship and in love and in family. And even though our narrator in this poem is outside of that, and she's walking along the beach. And of course, I live in near Tremor. So I have a real sense that, you know, I can see where she's walking. I, I see where she's walking. She's gone past the end of the promenade in Tremor and she's walking out towards Solines. You know, I yeah. can see that in my mind. <laughs> and she is alone. But at the same time, she is. She is nurtured by the memory and knowledge that there is happiness and family and the twinkling of the tree. She, she knows all that is there. It has been hers in the past. And I suppose as a reader, I hope that she will have those things again and that this is a, a very important 
unavoidable moment in her life when she's mourning. And, you know, I suppose, you know, my own life, my own father has passed on and, you know, I, Christmas is a very emotional time when you think how much you, how, how, how much you're restored by the fabulous Christmases that you had in the past and your dad and his Christmas jumper or, you know, your mother and the, the dinner she would make and all of those things that, you know, was in yes. your poem as well. Mm. That you were, can return to a memory. You can return to that yeah. in that Wordsworthian sense yeah. of I can be here in a very different place, but restored by the, the nurturing power of the imagination that literature and that art can bring to us. And so, you know, that idea of your Christmas anthology, be, and we keep it on the, the, the table. I mean, it gets covered up with, you know, trains and um, Orbeez and other ridiculous things that Santi does bring. <laughs> <laughs> but underneath, the, 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 the anthology is there. And when I get a chance to sit down, I will open it. And I'll have those little readings, those moments to go, OK, this is another way that we can think about Christmas. Mm. Lovely. And what an appropriate way it is to bring everything to a conclusion. I think that is so true that we have literature and we have film that we can return to again and again and again that asks questions of us mm. that we can appreciate and that hopefully fills us up with a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning at this time. So happy Christmas to happy one Christmas and all. Christmas to one and all. And can I take this opportunity as well to say a huge happy Christmas to all of our students in the arts programme um, that we are so delighted and we are very blessed to yes. have you as well and to have you as part of our lives every yes, day. Um, so happy Christmas to everybody. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> 